0: Todd's Road Campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Would you pray as we begin to uh, move to the Word? Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts and minds to hear fresh your Word today, uh, to to hear your call and your sending of us into mission. Uh, May we uh, receive the Word, be transformed uh, by it, and may we go forth in your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I think you've heard me talk about my father a number of times and the way that uh, growing up, he was the most pious person I knew. Uh, being uh, medically retired from the Marine Corps, he had tons of time on his hands. So he would spend hours in the morning uh, in prayer and in scripture reading. Uh, he had this giant box of Navigator's topical memory system cards that he memorized. He uh, read every Josh McDowell and uh, um, not John, yeah, those guys—Philip um, Yancey, Max Lucado—books that were on the market. Uh, he uh, he lived his discipleship very actively. Uh, one of the things he encouraged was scripture memory, and he he had that box of cards, and he bought me my own little set when I was young. And uh, you know, you pull out a card and you you'd read, uh, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life." John 3:16. Uh, That's like NIV. Uh, We were doing KJV when I was little. But uh, you'd memorize that card, and you'd put it in the back, and then you'd memorize the next one. Uh, Jesus wept, and you'd put it in the back of the card. And you'd kind of learn these verses. I was always fascinated about how he could draw on uh, any verse at just the right time, and it would seem appropriate. It would seem fitting, and he could talk about. But that was when uh, Jehoiakim was king of so-and-so and this and that. Uh, For me, I never had any of that context around them. I simply had these verses from a card. Uh, You've heard me say that uh, most of my life, I didn't get the broader picture of Scripture. I didn't see how it fit together, especially the Old Testament part, uh, really after Abraham and all the way until New Testament. It was like, how does this fit together? So if you gave me uh, a memory verse card from the Old Testament, it literally had no context to it. I can make it say anything I wanted because it was just these few words. I think our broader Christian industrial complex has specialized in that kind of use of scripture. Of uh, short little sound bites of scripture divorced from their context. Uh, We see it in coffee cups and throw pillows in. Uh, specialized study Bibles, and uh, wall art. We see it uh, in talking heads from uh, each wing of the political spectrum. Draw a verse here or a verse there and use it to say what you want it to say um, or to say whatever makes you feel good. I think for me, two of the most classic examples are uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace, plans to prosper you. It is a very sweet verse taken on, it, on that face. But the problem is this verse is literally given to Jeremiah right as Yahweh says, hold on, you're going to Babylon for 70 years. Everything I've promised you is gone. You're not in a nation. You're not really a people. I am out of the temple. Hang on for a generation of exile. How many of us use the verse that way? Uh, Paul in Philippians, I think it's four or eleven or two or eleven. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the athlete's favorite scripture, right? I can score this touchdown because of the Holy Spirit. Probably better translated, I can endure all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's been talking about all of the mess he has gone through. The uh, persecution, the thorn in his side... The imprisonment, I can endure all of this mess because Christ gives me strength. Even John 3:16, uh, we, we like to say, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not have perished, but have everlasting life. But we even divorce it from just the next verse, which talks about saving the whole of creation, the whole of the cosmos. We've turned it into a personalized uh, me and my Savior Jesus, when really it's about the whole world being righted. I have a fear that we've done the same thing to this passage today. We've plucked this idea of God uh, caring about the sparrows and us even more than the sparrows out of its context. If God would love these cheap little sparrows so much that not one to fall to the ground without him knowing, uh, how much more us? He knows the hairs on our head. He is going to take care of us. And God absolutely does know the hairs on our heads and God will absolutely take care of us. But I don't think it's in the way that we like to put that on a coffee cup or even to spout it out when times are hard. This is within the context of Israel's story. Israel, who has been waiting to return from exile, even though they're back in the land, they're still waiting for Yahweh to kind of breathe things together. They're waiting for the day of the Lord. They've been looking for Messiah after Messiah. Jesus has come on the scene saying to them that I am making all things new. He's come to this patriarchal society where they're not uh, first understood as Israel, but they're first understood as part of a family. Each of these Beit Avs, as Sandy Richter likes to point us to, united in their tribe. This this is Judah we're talking about, the, the southern kingdom. This is a family in chaos. Jesus has come to them. He's called out some and invited them to journey with him in missions. He has been drawing crowds and they've been captivated and compelled by the Jesus story. They've begun to hear what it means to follow him. And then Jesus sends out the twelve. We read last week that he uh, gave them power to heal and to cast out demons and he sent them on their way. The part we didn't read talked about basically, uh, if they don't welcome you, kick the dust off your feet and go into the next town. The lectionary skips right over to where Sarah started us today. uh, But it leaves out a fairly substantial portion. Uh, This is the context for today's passage. Look, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Therefore be wise as snakes and innocent as doves. Watch out for people because they will hand you over to councils and they will beat you in their synagogues. They will haul you in front of governors and even kings because of me so that you may give your testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Whenever they hand you over, don't worry about how to speak or what you'll say because what you can say will be given to you at the moment. You are not doing the talking, but the spirit of my father is doing the talking through you. Brothers and sisters will hand each of you over to be executed. A father will turn his child in. Children will defy their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you on account of my name. But whoever stands firm until the very end will be saved. Whenever they harass you in one city, escape to the next, because I assure you, uh, you will not go through all the cities of Israel before the human one comes. Man, that's an encouraging pep talk from the head rabbi sending you out on mission, isn't it? In a society where really they are all family, where they're drawing from this common story to be told, go, and the very fabric of your society is going to rip apart. Go and know that you are going to probably die. Go and know that you're going to be harassed. Go and know that there will be trials. Go and suffer. We don't put that on our mission statement. Uh, We're making disciples across the street and around the world. Uh, We don't say worship, grow and serve and strengthen yourself up for the impending persecution and executions. For a long time, we've been comfortable uh, that... Going is not dangerous. But clearly in this moment, when Jesus sent these disciples out, it was dangerous and would come at a cost. This is the context of the scripture that Sarah read for us today. So hear these words fresh. Disciples aren't greater than their teacher and slaves aren't greater than their master. It's enough for disciples to be like their teacher and slaves to be like their master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, it is certain they will call the members of the household by even worse names. Just in these first couple verses, Jesus begins to paint this vision that uh, any delusions the disciples had of things being better for them than they were for Jesus are shattered. hey, You're not going to have it any better than me. If they call me the devil, they're not going to take it easy on you. Frankly, they're going to be worse to you. Therefore, don't be afraid of those people because nothing is hidden that won't be revealed and nothing secret that won't be brought out into the open. What I say to you in the darkness, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, announce from the rooftops. Jesus jumps right on in there, doesn't he? It's going to be worse for you than it is for me. So don't be afraid. Go and do this. The the things that you've heard as a whisper into your soul, go and shout loud from the rooftops. These things that have caused the religious leaders to want to kill me, go and shout it to the masses. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a small coin? But not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing it already. Even the hairs on your head are counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Reads a little differently within this context. I think he could have said, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Uh, They might very well kill your body. They can't kill your soul. Instead, worry about the cosmic consequences that both body and soul matter. He doesn't say, don't worry about the ones who can kill you because they're not going to kill you. Don't worry about the ones who can ridicule you because they're going to ridicule you, not going to ridicule you. Don't worry about the ones who could bring you up on trial because they're not going to bring you up on trial. He simply says, don't worry because it's not what matters. But there's more going on than simply this moment. Even though... God knows the hairs of your head and you have great value to him. There's no promise here that you'll have it better than Christ. But there is the promise that God is not going to leave you in this mission. That God is not going to forsake you when you're faithful to go. Jesus is Uh, economy here seems not to be a concern about uh, the temporal effects on the body because he knows that there is something bigger that ultimately it might cost the body for the world to have its souls transformed he knows that ultimately the body will be restored we have to also tend to folks souls He knows the hairs on your head, and you're worth more than sparrows, but he doesn't give the easy out. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before people, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before people, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This would feel like a gut punch. Jesus just told you what the realities of being on mission for him look like. He promises execution. He promises trials. He promises ridicule. And then says, if you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. If you deny me, I will deny you. The temptation... Uh, to deny Christ, to hold back on that message that he had whispered, seems reasonable in the human economy, doesn't it? In our system of living, self-preservation and protection seems worth it. But Jesus is still pointing to the cosmic implications of what we do here on the earth. That as heaven is breaking in, We don't get the choice to deny him and things be okay. If you acknowledge me before people, I'll acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before people, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And then he rounds it out with this. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People's enemies are members of their own households. Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. It's like sentence after sentence of verses taken out of context for most of my life. Uh, This is where we get the uh, uh, popular Christian uh, life life prioritization schemes, right? God, family, church, self, right? Uh, This is where we get the uh, pithy, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But what we have is a devastating passage pointing to the very fabric of their society unraveling. If you're from parts of Appalachia, this might feel more real than if you're a city boy like me. If you still live in the holler, If you still live near all the family, if you grew up with grandma up here and the cousins over here and all the family nearby, if you grew up uh, with family being the kind of center of your life, this might resonate more than me who saw my father's parents twice in my life and who we had to drive two hours to see my mom's parents. My aunts and uncles were spread out through the country. Family was not the bedrock of our society, but is absolutely the bedrock of this society. Uh, we've been reading, we've been doing the Epic of Eden on Wednesdays and Sandy Richter helped paint a picture for the house of the father and how this isn't uh, mom and dad and two kids with a white picket fence. This is 30 or 40 people in the family compound And then these compounds make up the city who are part of the tribe. Whose father was your father was absolutely critical to being who you were. I was a son of Jesse. A son of Zebedee. We, we even hear this still today in Icelandic names, um, Sorensen's son, Sorensen's daughter. This society, rooted in the family, is being told that the family is not the foundations anymore. That now what unites people together is their allegiance to Christ. A society that has largely um, misunderstood Yahweh, has uh, not worshipped him well, and who has continued to trample on folks, um, is going to see their foundations torn apart. You can no longer turn to your father as the source of hope. You turn to the father as the source of hope. You no longer turn to your mother for nurturing. You invite the spirit to nurture you. Your brother might very well reject Jesus' message and yet you're still told to go and tell him. Your sister might be the one who turns you in for the words you're proclaiming. This is not a passage about the inherent Uh, badness of families it's a passage about the breakdown of society and how their very essence of being is going to have to change we said last week that we were called into the same mission that this sending out to make people whole wasn't just for the twelve that it was for us And if this was the cost for the 12, it's the cost for us. Some of it probably doesn't feel as real or as scary. But it is very much the reality. That we are sent to a world who is increasingly rejecting the Jesus message. A world who, uh, though they might not string us up on a cross... Might reject us from the social club. Though they might not uh, persecute us on the street corner, they might not invite your kid to the swim party or to the barbecue. the calls might slow down and the texts might not be as frequent. And it's still going to have impacts on our family. This uh, society that isn't family-oriented still has families. We're still born of parents and we're still siblings and we're still children and we still have all that mess to deal with. we'd love to be able to have Mother's Day and Father's Day prayers that uh, acknowledge that everything is perfect and right but it's not so we have to do these long difficult prayers that name, there are some great fathers and mothers out there and there's some rotten ones there are some mothers and fathers who uh, never got to be mothers and fathers and there's mothers and fathers who lost children early, there all these problems in our families and that's the ones we are comfortable talking about I've been thinking a lot this week about how much easier it is to actually go to a protest than to tell grandpa he is racist and it's not okay how much easier it is to hold up a sign than to tell your best friend that that joke is not okay How much easier it is to offer up prayers and money than to confront the problems even within our families. The effects might look different, but the realities are the same. Christ sent the twelve, He commissioned them into mission. Told them to go and announce liberation, to shout out loud those things that Christ was telling them. We know that he tells the same to us in Matthew 28 when he commissions us to go and make disciples baptizing and teaching. And so we should expect no better than what our master received. Will we acknowledge him before people? that he might acknowledge us before the Father. As I've been wrestling with uh, this passage, I've been struck by how when we started the year with Jesus, we all thought, yes, it's the year with Jesus. It's not the prophets anymore. It's not these doom and gloom passages. Things are great because it's happy Jesus stories. There is a great hope in these passages because we know what it is like when you encounter Christ and you're captivated and compelled because we know what it's like when he sets a fire into your heart. We know what it's like to be part of a new family. The body of Christ united in one mission. In the days and weeks ahead, we're going to have to draw upon God who knows the hairs on our head even if they're few. We're going to have to draw upon the strength of God who loves us far more than the sparrow. I found the Psalms to be a great source of hope uh, in this season of struggle um, and in this reflection on what it means to truly be and to follow. In morning prayers the other morning we read Psalm 86 and I found it to be maybe my cry as I confront the realities of what it means to follow. Lord, listen closely to me and answer me, because I am poor and in need. Guard my life, because I am faithful. Save your servant who trusts in you, my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, because I cry out to you all day long. Make your servant's life happy again, because, my Lord, I offer my life to you. Because, my Lord, you are good and forgiving, full of faithful love for all those who cry out to you. Listening closely to my prayer, Lord, pay close attention to my sound of the request for mercy. Whenever I'm in trouble, I cry out to you because you will answer me. My Lord, there's no one like you among the gods. There's nothing that compared to your works. All the nations that you've made will come and bow down before you, Lord. They will glorify your name because you are awesome and a wonder worker. You're God. Just you. Teach me your way, Lord, so I can walk in your truth. Make my heart focused on honoring your name. I give thanks to you, my Lord, my God, with all my heart and I will glorify your name forever because your faithful love toward me is awesome and because you've rescued my life from the lowest parts of hell. The arrogant rise up against me, God, a gang of violent people want me dead. They don't give a thought for you, but you, my Lord, you are a God of compassion and mercy. You are patient and full of faithful love. Come back to me, have mercy on me. Give your servant your strength. Save this child of your servant. Show me a sign of your goodness so that those who hate me will see it and be put to shame. Show a sign that you are Lord. That you have helped me and comforted me. The psalmist regularly testifies that uh, God has uh, been faithful and been present That God has answered their cries and yet they still endure. So my heart's cries are that I would be faithful and be aware that God is with me as I endure. And it's my prayer for you that you would be faithful to the call to go in mission and to endure what that, what that means and what that, the implications of that are. But that you would draw upon the abiding presence of Christ, that the Spirit of God would testify with your spirit that he has not left you nor forsaken you. There's no option to uh, be lukewarm here. Either we acknowledge Christ or we deny him. And friends, our world desperately needs a church unashamed to acknowledge him, to shout from the rooftops what he has done and what he is doing. It's my prayer for this church that we do that, that we set a fire of the Holy Spirit free in Lexington through our ministry. My prayer is that our families are not broken because of this, but they are transformed. That Wherever there is the human frailty, the effects of sin, that they're actually knit together because of an obedience to the call of the Spirit. That we become families sent out on mission to declare that God is good. God is a God who has sent us, He's also a God who deeply loves us, who knows us intimately. And who cares for us? Would you pray with me? God, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. We're thankful that In taking on flesh in Christ, you showed us what it meant to live sacrificially. That as you emptied yourself of your divine prerogative and went on mission, so you have asked us to empty ourselves of our own self-will and to live out your mandates. Lord, fill us with your Spirit in ways that enable us to... uh, I acknowledge you before the world in bold and powerful ways to shout from the rooftops what you have taught us and what you have done. In the season of life where things already seem hard, as uh, we deal with the implications of being bold and our witness for you, be a balm to our soul and help us know that you are near, that you never turn your face away and that you love us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself up for us, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, who enlivens us even to this day. Amen and amen.